Spencer. And I'm Andrew, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today we'll be speaking with atmospheric physicist and climatologist Hans-Joachim Schellenhuber, who is co-founder of Bauhaus Earth and a member of the new European Bauhaus High-Level Roundtable. He is also the Director Emeritus of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, which he founded in 1992. And for the past few years, he has been focused on the transformation of the built environment and the potential of timber buildings as carbon sinks. And what makes John so unique is this perspective he has on addressing the warming planet through solutions in the built environment using this very multidisciplinary approach. Before we get into the episode, we'd first like to thank our sponsor, the Japanese luxury timepiece manufacturer, Grand Seiko, a company deeply connected to nature that brings an incredible level of craft and detail to every watch it creates. From its founding in 1960, Grand Seiko has sought to create the world's most durable and beautiful watches with the highest degree of accuracy and legibility possible. They're really the ultimate in practical watchmaking. For one of its latest watches, the SBGJ259, a special edition exclusive to the U.S. and shipping this fall, Grand Seiko turned to the verdant bamboo forests in northern Japan. The dial of the watch features a dramatic striated pattern that oscillates between different tones of green, evoking the vertical lines and organic coloration of the bamboo. With a GMT function that allows its wearers to track an additional time zone, it's an ideal timepiece for frequent travelers. To learn more about the SBGJ259 and Grand Seiko's other distinctive timepieces, head to www.grand-seiko.com. And now, here's our conversation with Hans Joachim Schellenhuber. Hi, John. Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us today. I'm happy to join you this afternoon, and I'm looking forward to your questions and possibly my own answers. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess where we can start is with more than half the world's population living in cities and increasing every year, more homes are going to be built with steel and concrete, creating a serious carbon footprint that we know. So how should we be solving this or thinking about this at a material level? Now, let me first of all say that uh, the world is divided into blocks. You have the developed countries like US, Germany, UK, and so on. And there, of course, the built environment has been accumulated over centuries, uh, in particular after the Second World War, of course. So one will not only build new homes, of course, you still keep building new homes, but uh, in particular on the margins of the big cities. But it is also about how you deal with the already existing built environment. Uh, you can enable it, you can improve it, you can tear it down, of course, you can put additional stories on top of it and so on. Uh, so this is more or less dominating the debate in Germany, for example, uh, while Nevertheless, the German government promised, and it will be a broken promise, of course, that 400,000 additional accommodation units will be created every year, actually, now. So there is a mixture, if you like, of already existing built environment uh, 
end additions uh, to, to this overall complex. The situation is completely different on other continents, in particular in the so-called global south. Uh, so for me, the biggest challenge is Africa, clearly. Uh, when I was born in 1950, there were, I think, 200 million people on this huge continent. Now it's way beyond 1 billion, and the predictions are 3 billion by the end of this century. So the biggest cities are projected to be, at the end of the century, Dar es Salaam, Kinshasa, and Lagos, all in Africa. And to put it bluntly, 80%, 90% of the needed accommodations for Africa still have to be built. Uh, and the same is true for the many other countries. Uh, so altogether, we will reach an urbanization degree of maybe 80%, unless we have a complete paradigm shift on the built environment, which we, ourselves, try to sort of instigate. Uh, but otherwise, we will have this, the same thing that happened in Great Britain in the 19th century, uh, but you had 20% in cities and 80% living on the land, and when it was completely converted. Uh, and, of course, we will build billions and billions of new edifices, uh, infrastructures and so on. And now, if this is done in concrete and steel, the conventional way, we just calculated this as climate scientists, this alone will make us overshoot any of the guardrails of the Paris Agreement. Uh, if it's 1.5, which is already out of sight, in my view, and uh, also the more important two degrees limit, in summary, if we are not able to bring about a deep transformation of the built environment in the next two decades, more or less, we will all be toast. So maybe you could share a bit about the work you're doing and, and particularly how, what, and where we should build and how that could have massive impacts on the planet's future. Now, first of all, uh, as a climate scientist, of course, I was looking into the factors that really contribute to the emissions. And as I said, 40% of global emissions come from the life cycle of construction, uh, infrastructures, and so on. So this is the big lever where you should act. Now, the really amazing option, the unique value proposition of what we propose, namely to use organic materials, uh, but also arrange and design settlements in a more organic way, like ecosystems, uh, for example. So it's at all scales that you take nature-based solutions. Uh, the amazing, unique value proposition is that currently the built environment is the biggest climate sinner, but it can be converted into the biggest, if you like, saint and hero on climate restoration. And that is different, say, from the mobility sector. In the mobility sector, the best you can achieve is climate neutrality. So I'm driving a Tesla, although Elon Musk is not my friend anymore, <laughs> according to what he is, sort of his political statements. But, uh, and we have green electricity at home, so I'm climate neutral, more or less. Huh? 
But what I cannot be is climate positive in the sense. Uh, now, if you take a piece of timber, which was taken from a living tree, which was harvested, uh, when through photosynthesis, the tree has grown on our pollution, on our carbon pollution. That's the wonderful thing that we have as natural friends. Uh, we grow on our pollution and you can convert this stuff into precious material. Uh, so it's the perfect nature-based solution. And it's amazing that people have not really seriously thought about it. I mean, of course, there have been pioneers, uh, there have been construction companies and so on, but they used wood or bamboo uh, or hemp or whatever, more or less for its uh, nice qualities. You know, everybody loves to live in a timber house. It smells good. Uh, it has very good thermal properties. Uh, it's beautiful if it's done by a good architect, but nobody has in a systemic way thought of creating a global carbon sink, actually. Yeah? Because if the two or three billion buildings to be built in a global south in the future are built from organic material, we would, as a side effect, actually clean up the atmosphere. Yeah? And we would not build in a bad way, no, we would build in a beautiful way, in a more flexible way. So it comes with all the beautiful co-benefits, but as a side effect, you you actually mop up the CO2 from the atmosphere. And this is such a fantastic option. It is in no way guaranteed that humanity will embrace a fantastic option. We've seen this many times before. Uh, we could have conquered or defeated cancer a long time ago, in my view, if we would have used this genetic vaccination approaches we use now for because of Corona, COVID-19 and so on. But here is a perfect win-win-win solution, namely reforest the planet, which is necessary anyway, and retimber the city, yeah, that's the slogan, so to speak. Yeah? That would mean we will have a nicer, a more beautiful, a probably also more inclusive built environment, which at the same time is the biggest climate positive enterprise on earth. Yeah? So that's the big vision. And uh, of course, if you tell such a story or such a narrative, I mean, it's different in the US, but in Germany, people won't say, oh, that's wonderful. I loved that story. I want to be part of it. No, we will try to find all, you know, the <laughs> the obstacles and all the, the things that will not work. Now we try to find all types of snacks, so to speak, uh, criticism, and try to overcome them by doing even better calculations and so on. That's the, and at the same time, so this is the systems analysis. So we do a global and regional systems analysis of this transformation of the built environment. But at the same time, we are now in very close contact with startups, with entrepreneurs, with foundations, because in the end, if you tell such a story, you have to illustrate it. So it's like a, a nice book. If you have a few good illustrations, 
people uh, enjoy reading it much better. And the illustrations are, of course, lighthouse projects, uh, model projects, where you either build just one house and do it right, or you redesign an entire quarter of a city, or you even think of entire landscapes. Uh, so this a portfolio of deep demonstration projects is more or less the background music and the illustration of our systems analysis. But I am not an architect. We work together closely with architects. I'm the systems analyst here in this club. <laughs> I wanted to ask, I mean, what are some of the current roadblock factors you see in moving this timber construction or even earth architecture forward, thinking about just using local materials? Thanks, uh, Spencer, for the question, because you're absolutely right. This is not just a focus on timber. I mean, timber has this fantastic advantage that it sucks up CO2 while it grows, which is not the case for clay or what have you. But nevertheless, a combination of all types of materials which are not climate negative and which are locally available can be part of a circular built environment uh, should be considered, of course. Uh, but let me start with timber nevertheless, because the first thing is, do we have enough available? Uh, so without cutting down all the forests of the world, can we really use it as uh, the building material? Uh, and that's why I said reforest the planet we have 1 billion hectares of degraded land on this planet and reforesting it, or at least part of it, would be good anyway. It would improve water, soil quality, biodiversity, and so on. So we actually calculated in a paper we just did for, for Nature Communications that for 2 billion additional people on Earth before the population curve will bend down again if we would provide them with nature-based accommodation uh, we would need to reforest about 200 million hectares of land in the Sahel uh, in India in, in Mexico you have many places in the Mediterranean this is just one-fifth of the available land and the next thing is of course fire safety <laughs> the europeans in particular are obsessed with fire since the big fire of london 1666 you know ever since we think we have to build from stone or bricks or whatever you know that in the meantime all these problems have been solved we can treat timber or hybrid buildings clay and timber in a way that they are even safer when concrete and steel. Uh, and uh, the next thing is just to be, so to speak, down to earth on that acoustics, for example, uh, how how you get rid of the noise. Uh, as you know, in traditional timber buildings, it's a big problem. Now with modern installations, with better physics, with better design, you can actually avoid it. And so you can go on in principle, and this is a study we want now to do, and it will be a hopefully groundbreaking study. We want to show that in every place in the world, in every region, you could build from local materials 
at least climate neutral, if not climate positive. Eh? So, of course, uh, if you are in Santa Fe, then you probably will use some Adobe approach, uh, clay and so on, plus some, yeah, Ponte Rosa pines, whatever. So take the natural bounty of materials and try to be as climate positive as possible. And then, of course, the big question is cost. Uh, so still the conventional construction industry says uh, we will always be cheaper than you uh, with your fancy approaches. And this is not true anymore. There are a number of construction companies who can show that they can at least compete in cost uh, with conventional buildings, even if you have eight-story buildings and things like that. And you will be probably ahead of the conventional industry in a few years from now for various reasons. Digitalization helps a lot uh, because you can design with the use of artificial intelligence, uh, timber buildings, prefabrication, assembly time much, much shorter. Uh, no weather influence, you can prefabricate modules. And then, of course, a sort of uh, reward on your carbon sink achievements. Uh, so you get a carbon credit when you will be far ahead uh, of the conventional. Uh, but I could go on and on on the snacks. <laughs> yeah, what about the mills? Because at one point, you know, we had a world filled with sawmills when we were building that way. But, you know, upstream, how do we exploit this material without a really upstream manufacturing process that's in place? Actually, this was also the bottleneck, I was told. Then after the financial crisis, uh, the subprime crisis in the U.S. in particular, a lot of sawmills were closed down uh, because obviously uh, the real estate market collapsed, which may happen again in a way. So we have clearly this bottleneck right now, uh, and we need to to think about new sort of uh, fabrication roads. When it comes to producing timber-based or bamboo-based modules, a number of factories are being opened right now. So I will go next month to Poland, where a huge timber factory is being opened, the same in Brandenburg. And they will work with pines, for example, not spruce. Uh? So we use the local species uh, of trees here. The mills is still a problem, I think, because you would have to create a value proposition which is part of an integrated pipeline, uh, which means from the forest itself, uh, which has to be reorganized anyway because of climate change, ironically, uh, to the mills, to the timber module fabrication, to the end user, to the markets and so on. You need to think in a new system where each branch has a place. Uh, and this means that you have to, in a way, integrate the built environment business. And what I learned to my surprise when I entered this field is that this is a highly fragmented market. Uh, again, talking about Europe. Uh, so 
you have a few bigger ones, but most of them are small, medium enterprises. It's completely different, say, from the German automobile industry. We have three big players. Uh, if they decide to go electric, they will do it. Uh, and they have billions of research uh, funds and so on. This is not in the built environment. It's much more horizontal and spread out. Yeah, much more horizontal, absolutely. So there are two ways, of course, for integration. You could try to create networks of smaller units uh, through uh, a really good narrative, uh, which is something we try to do. Or you can convince a few of the bigger players, it is Strabag, so these are big companies, to take an integrated approach and to make sure that they get the material they need. So they might even own the forests, actually, or the sawmills or whatever, as car manufacturers do. Like Tesla, yeah, going totally vertical and ha making it happen. Precisely. So you're right. It would be a Tesla approach to timber construction. So we even thought of using, because as you know, Tesla was an ingenious physicist and technician from Serbia, I think. And Elon Musk just took his name, which is a nice name. And we even thought of creating a similar approach called Gropius, <laughs> because Gropius, the founder of the the Bauhaus 1919, uh, even thinking of a standardized two-family home built from timber and so on, and let's call it the Gropius. Uh, so that would be the, uh, the equivalent of the Tesla in a way. Uh. I love how you've drawn this comparison to Bowser. Then we're going to get to that in a second. I want to move back a little bit, all the way back to 2012, 20 years ago now, or 10, 10 years ago, sorry. In 2012, you were the lead author on uh, on the report commissioned by the World Bank on possible impacts oh, yeah. of four degrees Celsius warming towards the end of the 21st century. Could you speak to what you would actually to what it would actually look like if the planet warms that much over the next 78 years? Like, paint that picture for us. Yeah. Now, thanks for the question, because actually, in a way, this was a turning point in in my own work. It's true, I was approached by a, a colleague I knew for a long time in the World Bank. Actually, I ran into him at an airport, I think, in Sweden or Finland. And he said, well, John, we've got $40,000 left to burn this fiscal year. And couldn't you do an integrated study on how to adapt to a four degrees warmer world and four degrees centigrade, not Fahrenheit? And I said, okay, if you want to burn that money, give it to us. Uh, I will set up a small team and we have all the tools and the models. And we started to put the things together and our eyes glazed over because we saw there's no way for a technical civilization to survive a four degrees warming. Uh, I mean, we would run out of food, of water, of everything more or less. And... Uh, this became then one of the most successful reports of the World Bank called Turn Down the Heat, why we have to avoid a four degrees warming. And today, I mean, we have the COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, 
uh, right now and people talk about 2.5 degrees warming the end of the world uh, which is true to some extent so fortunately nobody speaks anymore about adapting to four degrees what would happen well the usual suspects of course uh, food production would certainly not keep up anymore with a still growing world population so that's the perfect storm in a way we will have too much water in, in some places and too little in other places so this a sort of uh, distinction and heterogeneity would even increase but what i would argue and what we also highlighted in the world bank report is and this is a research field i helped to develop and have pursued for the last 20 years is so-called tipping points in the earth system uh, that is highly disruptive non-linear events because when i entered the climate field nobody talked about this so it was all about economic models where everything is smooth and convex and you turn a knob slowly and then inflation goes up and then turn an up a knob uh, unemployment goes down and so on it's all a wonderful smooth and calculable world but the real world the world we physicists described is is wild and disruptive uh, and chaotic of course so equipped with the methods i developed where we looked at the planetary system as a whole and we identified at least a dozen of subsystems in the planetary machinery which can be tipped into destruction or conversion and we recently did a report on that so even below two degrees you run the risk of collapsing six major elements including the greenland ice sheet the western arctic ice sheet some forest systems part of the gulf stream system and so on and still below two degrees most of the big accidents can be avoided but if you go into the range of three to four degrees you just raise hell huh? i mean the world which supported for 12,000 years the emergence of our civilization huh? because homo sapiens exists for 300,000 years but only 12,000 years ago you know agriculture and all these things started huh? this was supported by an extremely stable climate if we would push ourselves out far out of this comfort zone for a civilization you would have to relocate billions of people because of sea level rise because of humid heat in the inner tropics because of melting glaciers so people run out of water and so on you would have to relocate billions of people and nobody can imagine this would happen without bloodshed i mean we have now in germany again adopted uh, taking up a million people from ukraine and people in principle are very sympathetic to that uh, but we couldn't digest as a society 40 million people uh, for example so this would be the end of a civilized world and when i entered this field 1992 i founded the potsdam institute we still thought well four five six degrees that's uncomfortable 
but we can somehow manage it. Uh, now we know there's no way. And then in, in 2015, you were a member of the German delegation and you played this key role in negotiating the Paris climate targets of one and a half and two degrees. Now, in 2022, what do you think is actually achievable with everything you see on a daily basis? No, Paris was in a way the best of all these climate conferences. And I mean, I tried to be realistic even, even in Paris. So the one and a half degrees was more or less a concession to the small island states. And they are right in the sense that sea level rise can be contained to a manageable level if we stay below 1.5 degrees. But as a climate physicist, I have to tell you bluntly, there's no credible way to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees. Simply take away the air pollution effect. I mean, global warming would already be more pronounced if we wouldn't have this sulfur droplets in the stratosphere, even coming from our unfiltered uh, burning of fossil fuels, for example. This alone is reducing global warming, if it would only be driven by CO2, is masking actually half a degree centigrade already. Yeah? We'll just clean up now the atmosphere from ordinary pollution. Uh, global warming would shoot beyond 1.5 degrees, uh, and we still emit, of course. So my story, and that is why the bow bended, uh, the transformation of the built environment is so important. I talk about climate restoration now. Uh, so we will overshoot 1.5 degrees probably in 15 years already, 20 years. We will unfortunately also overshoot 2 degrees. But the question is, how far and how long? Yeah? So if we can... And if it can be reversed. So my, my idea is that you really go beyond two degrees, but try to keep as close as possible to that guardrail. And then you bend the curve again. You bend it down again quickly. Quickly means two centuries, because we have now, in a way... Uh, derailed the atmosphere within two centuries since the Industrial Revolution. It will take about two centuries, according to my calculation, to bend the curve back to something like one degrees warming. I think one degrees warming is still a safe level where we have already shifts, you know. In, in Europe, some German cities are more or less now in a way, they feel like Mediterranean cities already, yeah? but still this is manageable. So again, it is keeping overshooting as small as possible, as short as possible, but then start to bend the curve back, actually. And this means active removal of CO2 from the atmosphere. And of course, you have heard about this geoengineering dreams uh, that people built big filters, factories uh, to purify the atmosphere with all type of technical approaches. But this is, in a way, very stupid if you can do it the natural way. Uh, if you can plant more trees, of course, and if you can use the dreams and you create a continuous stream 
of harvested biomass, which is sequestered in the built environment. Uh, it's as simple as that, actually. The question is how quickly, and I said it will probably take 200 years to come back to, say, 350 ppm CO2, which is equivalent to one degree warming. Uh, it's the biggest project of humankind in history, but it's a good project because it's not toxic. You don't need nuclear waste. <laughs> you just need to reinvent a tradition of building and improve it with our technical means of today, reinvent something which humanity was able to do. One week ago I was in Japan, it was a big conference on the environment because Japan will host the G7 next year. And so it was a big conference with the prime minister, environment minister, the emperor and the empress. I actually was asked to give the keynote and I had a private audience with the imperial couple afterwards. And I reminded the Japanese that they have the most exquisite timber architecture tradition on earth, actually. So you have temples from the 6th century or 7th century, so what I'm saying is restoration is possible, but it's only possible through the co-transformation of land use, including sustainable forestry, and the built environment. So it's not one transformation anymore, it's a co-transformation we need. Well, this is a great segue because I did want to get to your work with Bauhaus Earth here, which is so multidisciplinary and thinking across sectors, looking at human habitats, building cities, and how all of these kind of can be a means toward climate restoration. Could you just speak briefly to the mission and vision of the work at Bauhaus Earth and how it sort of fits into the conversation we're having here? I mean, why Bauhaus Earth? I have thought about the potential of organic or climate neutral architecture for a long time. But then uh, the year 2019 came along. Uh, and you know, the original Bauhaus was founded in Weimar in 1919, after the end of the First World War. And the idea was to create good living environment not for the elites anymore, but really for ordinary people. Uh, Europe was partly destroyed after the war, uh, and the elites had to give up power. So it was a new deal on the built environment with new objectives. But the really amazing thing was uh, that, yes, of course, the architects, the designers, uh, the all the people involved, of course, wanted to adopt the new possibilities, techniques, and so on, which the industrial age brought about for the built environment. Uh, so steel, prefabrication, cereal production, all ma types of materials, uh, new ways of treating glass uh, and bricks and so on. But they saw it as a in German, you say Gesamtkunstwerk, that means an integrated piece of art. So 
painters and artists as well as artisans and designers and architects uh, and carpenters and cabinet makers, what have you, uh, should co-create a vision of the built environment in the 20th centuries, which is serving the many and not the few anymore. Uh, and now in 2019, I thought now, and this is Bauhaus Earth. So Bauhaus, I've explained, Earth, well, we have to build our future within the planetary boundaries, uh, not tipping all these elements that sustain an environment supporting our life. Uh. So I thought, well, if you have all these celebrations, centennial celebrations, people would think about, well, what would Gropius, Mies van der Rohe, all these people think if I would be reborn today and look around and see two billion people live in slums, uh, two billion people will be added and probably end up in slums as well. Our cities have been designed for cars and not human beings and so on. I mean, it's an endless story you can tell. So the current built environment is not only unsustainable, it's also dysfunctional and divisive, uh, and it's ugly. <laughs> so what would Gropius and all the others think about it? We would say, oh, we have to reinvent ourselves. We need an integrated approach again, but it has to be even more integrated. So you do not only need carpenters, you need climate scientists, biodiversity specialists, and so on. Uh, and we have to think in terms of the 21st century. So I said, if nobody is willing to restart the Bauhaus movement of 1919, I have to do it, <laughs> which sounds completely crazy, of course. And I'm probably a renowned climate scientist, but of course, if you enter the world of designers and architects and urban developers, they, of course, John Schellenhuber, who? Who is he? Yeah. What has he to do with the built environment? But I told my story and fortunately I found companions on the way very easily. Uh, I was able to collect actually a group of about 30 individuals who said, yes, we have to restart the Bauhaus movement in the 21st century and let's call it Bauhaus Earth. Uh, and then a very important step was that we were able to convince Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, to start her new European Bauhaus movement. Uh, it is becoming uh, a global story now. Uh, so we will have to create real projects, of course, illustrations, as I said. We will have to help redesign urban development plans and so on. We will have to do deep research on this co-transformation I talked about. But in the end, I hope I will have been simply the trigger to start with finger, and then the real professionals will take over. <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, of course, so you start this thing and then COVID-19 happens. Um, but you've also been able to start some really interesting conversations. And this past summer, Bauhaus Earth organized the Reconstructing the Future for People and Planet conference. And 
I wanted to ask, out of everything you heard there and all the conversations and presentations that took place, what were some of the most interesting findings or arguments, the things that have stuck with you that you think we should all be thinking about, talking about? Now, the first uh, thing is very simple, that we were able to make it happen at all, uh, involving Pritzker Prize winners like Shigeru Bana and uh, Francis Carré and Berkler's Architects and Ursula von der Leyen and Cardinals and meeting the Pope and so on in the Vatican. The sheer fact that this happened and you were able to bring together an ensemble which reflects this Gesamtkunstwerk approach, this integrated piece of art approach. That was, of course, amazing. But the second insight, probably even more important, was we tried very hard to involve not just Europeans or Americans, but the global South. Huh? And it became absolutely crystal clear that the global South has so many solutions to offer. Huh? I mean, Francis Carré is, uh, comes from Burkina Faso. He has an office in Berlin. Uh, and of course, he lives in both worlds. But we had people from Indonesia working with bamboo uh, and people from Colombia creating sort of co-evolutionary approaches in the deep rainforest and things like that. So what we learned is that nature and the diversity of indigenous cultures is offering a fantastic pool of solutions which is completely pushed aside by the standard conventional architectural and urban development approach uh, where you buy cement from Canada and build ugly and dysfunctional buildings somewhere in Vietnam uh, or Cambodia which of course become dysfunctional or dilapidated uh, within 30 years. Uh, so why not doing it the other way around? Let's look at the, I call it, in comparison with biodiversity, I call it archiversity. Uh, let's think at the archiverse, which we have on this planet. And if we add the natural solution, I think we can find wonderful stories how the built environment of the future can look like. And it will look unlike what we, as I said before, I was born in 1950 and I grew up with reading all these science fiction stories, you know, how the future world will look like old skyscrapers built from metal and glass and right angles and perfect circles and so on. I think the built future will look much more like an ecosystem. Huh? It will be much greener, much softer, much more colorful. It will be resilient. It will create its own resources. Uh, and it will be much better to live in. So I think this type of vision transpired from the meeting. And I have a word for it. I call it the re-entanglement, the re-entanglement of nature and civilization, the re-entanglement of various strata of society, the re-entanglement of the masculine and the feminine, and so on. So hopefully, again, this is a crazy, a crazy vision, a crazy ambition, but maybe one day we will have this 
notion of re-entanglement as powerful as the notion of renaissance uh, 500 years ago. Before we let you go, I mean, something that we so deeply appreciate about your perspective is a sense of optimism, abundance, not scarcity. How do you think broadly the conversation needs to evolve to give people a sense of hope and agency? I mean, you're right. I, I was on a, at the symposium last week on the built environment, and it was amazing how many innovative ideas were exposed. So I didn't know this glass foam, you know, something you create from glass, recycled glass, you foam it up with a special technology. It's so light. Uh, it's like a cushion, actually. Uh, you can <laughs> sort of rock it in your arms. Uh, and it's extremely fire safe. It's extremely stable and so on. So there are so many solutions around. I think the answer is, first of all, be realistic. Look around. And actually, nature and culture is offering ten thousands of solutions we could use. Uh, the sad thing is we are burning the book of life in the Amazon, in the Congo, in Indonesia, before we even have cared to read it. Uh, so we have to read the book of life and see many solutions uh, uh, available. But I think it's even more important to tell stories of the new world. Uh, so when people in old Europe decided to emigrate to the United States or to America at that time. Yeah? Many Germans, for example, did. We were unemployed at home, we were poor, there was not enough space in the cities. So we took many pioneered this and found a better life. Not everybody, but many of them found a better life across the Atlantic. And some of them came back and told stories of the new world. So we have to envisage a new world of the built environment, but of society as a whole. And sometimes we just imagine ourselves into this new world and walk around there and suck up uh, the colors uh, and the smells uh, and, uh, and the shapes of that world. And when we come back and tell stories about this new world, uh, so we have to become ambassadors, messengers of the new world. Uh, and for that, you need a very good vision and you have to constantly improve your vision, but you have to tell the story. That's the most important thing. Uh, do not just sit in your study uh, and publish papers, but go out there, uh, go to the city, go to the Agora and tell the story. Uh, so, in a way, I find myself starting as a theoretical physicist working on the foundations of quantum theory. I've turned myself into, or I was turned by life into a storyteller. Well, thank you, John, for sharing your story with us today. This was really fantastic. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks to our episode sponsor, the Japanese luxury timepiece manufacturer, Grand Seiko, which raises the pure essentials of watchmaking to the level of art. You can learn more about the company at www.grand-seiko.com. And thanks for listening. 
To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for the weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv. This episode was produced by Ramon Broza, Emily Jang, and Johnny Simon.